0: Hey, how are you? How are you doing? I'm good. Uh, thanks a lot for doing this.
1: Thank you for inviting me to do it. I have very bright. Are we recording or just voice?
0: Uh, I have my camera on. I mean, it's up to you. If you, It's just for the podcast. We just do audio. Oh,
1: okay. Yeah. No, because there's a very bright light that might suddenly get in my eyes. and I might start going like this. That's all.
0: Okay. Um, how, how do I say your first name? Just so I know. Uh, think
1: of the E as in a, a all, a all, a all press. Okay, yeah. great.
0: Um, okay. So I'm, uh, I'm recording on zoom and, uh, I have my microphone here as well.
1: And, and just so I, I know, go. Matthew, how long are we going? Cause I should give, I should have a rough sense of how, how long my answers should be. Uh,
0: I mean it's kind of up to you. I was figuring maybe about 40 minutes if that works for you or or you know shorter if you need to. Forty's Forty's 40 is good. 40 is good. Okay, great. Yeah. great. All right. So, I'm going to start with a little introduction. Great. And then we'll jump in. Uh, right. you know, if if we start to discuss like one question for a while, I don't I don't need to jump to everything. I just kind of like to have a little guidance here for our conversation. Sounds Some good. Details. Okay. <clears throat> Hey, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the Working Experience podcast. My guest today is author and journalist All Press. He is a contributing writer to The New Yorker and The New York Times and is the author of Beautiful Souls, Absolute Convictions, and Dirty Work. And welcome, all
1: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, yeah, it was your book, uh, I heard you being interviewed on NPR and we at The Working Experience delve into work so certainly the uh subject matter and the title uh caught my ear so um yeah so i just for our listening audience that's how i reached out to a all and he was kind enough to respond and agree to join us for a little conversation um so could you tell us about yourself where you're from your education anything like that sure
1: i am the son of the rust belt i grew up in buffalo uh new york actually grew up in Sort of aftermath of deindustrialization um, and a lot of steel plants and auto plants closing in buffalo um, that had a pretty profound impact on me in terms of shaping my um, uh, view of America in a certain way that that um, you know even as the the 80s and 90s were especially the 90s were kind of celebrated in this kind of triumph of capitalism and you know uh, the dot-com bubble and all that uh, in Buffalo it was a different story uh, and so it it sort of shaped my interest in in inequality as a subject uh, and in issues of social justice generally. I didn't stay in Buffalo after um, going to high school there. I uh, attended college um, in Rhode Island um, at Brown University and after graduating, I eventually made my way to New York City. And I've worked as a journalist uh, in the city pretty much ever since.
0: And what, what kind of uh, stories were you reporting on, like, when you first became a journalist?
1: Very beginning. Um, so I, I got an internship at The Nation magazine. That was kind of my break um, into journalism. And, and I learned how to be a fact checker. And that's a really important skill when you start out um, because it's a way to actually earn some money as, as when you're starting out as a, as a reporter. Uh, magazines are often in need of folks to fact check the accuracy of the articles that are being written. And it's a really interesting perspective because it you, you learn in doing that what the sources of these articles are. Um, and I'm a firm believer that journalism and reporting is something you have to do to learn It's not something that um, going to graduate school is going to teach you. Uh, so I started really writing about um, you know anything that someone would w- w- would publish me on. Um, I wrote for mostly smaller magazines um, The Texas Observer was one in these Times um, the nation uh, and then I got a break and started writing for, little magazine called lingua franca which uh ha- hasn't existed for a long time but it's a magazine that kind of some people called it the people magazine of ac- of the academic world it, it it did all these articles about debates w- between scholars on different issues but i got to write about things that really interested me um like free trade and economics and sociology and history all these things. And really, it was kind of a way to learn, too, as I was getting into journalism. Then I eventually started doing more investigative reporting and long-form journalism. It took a long time for me to get opportunities to do that. It doesn't happen instantly. But um, eventually started getting assignments for longer features. And I've been doing that mostly in, in more recent years.
0: Okay, okay. So how did you um, come to write this book in particular? It's called, well, the one I'm referencing is Dirty Work. That's the one I heard about and the one I actually got out of the library. How how did you come to this particular, well, just to give our audience a little bit of a background, what's the book about?
1: Yeah, so Dirty Work um, is an expression I think a lot of your audience would have heard and probably associated with just an unpleasant job and, you know, maybe a physically unpleasant task, like hauling, hauling the garbage off the streets. Um, but that's not the subject of dirty work. My book, uh, in my book, dirty work refers to morally troubling activities that society depends on and tacitly condones, but doesn't generally want to hear too much about. So things like, um, you know, manning the kill floors in America's slaughterhouses, in, in the meatpacking industry, um, which supplies many fast food chains and supermarkets with meat, um, but but which are generally hidden from view, the slaughterhouses themselves, that is, and the factory farms, um, running America's prison system. Um, America, of course, has the largest prison system in the world. Um, And uh, that prison system is a de facto mental health system as well uh, because we don't fund mental health services. Um, Carrying out targeted assassinations in the drone program. All of these activities that I look at in the book are aspects of our society that raise profound moral questions about who we are as a people and what we're willing to have done in our name, but that we sort of keep out of sight and out of mind and therefore are not subject to so much public discussion and debate. And I thought, let's write a book about this to kind of shed light on it.
0: So it's sort of like the, uh, I, I don't know, the analogy that comes to my mind is like the mafia boss who lets his underlings carry out the dirty work, doesn't get his well, hands dirty. There's, there's a quote from, there's a James Baldwin quote at the very beginning of
1: the book. Um, and, and Baldwin in one of his books said, you know, um, uh, the powerful, uh, sorry, the, the, the powerless have to do their own dirty work. The powerful have it done for them. Mm-hmm. And um, that's kind of the premise of the book that these stigmatized, troubling jobs are disproportionately delegated to the folks in our society who have fewer choices and opportunities, which is a very convenient way for the more privileged members of society who benefit from having someone do these jobs, is a very convenient way for them to distance themselves from these activities, in a way not even be aware that they exist, and certainly not feel in any way implicated in them, uh, but allow them to go on because someone's gonna do it. It's just not gonna be you know, the sons and daughters of the elites. It's not gonna be um, you know, the more, more privileged caste of, of society. So it's a book about inequality. It's a book about work. It's a book about class. It's a book about race, um, but it's all through the prism of dirty work.
0: You know, I just read, uh, you know, it was a really terrible incident in New York City, uh, a woman was pushed in front of the subway, she was killed, and the man, uh, schizophrenic, been on the streets for a long time, in and out of jails, in and out of, you know, institutions. One person uh, interviewed a, a medical professional, said they become like mechanics, like you just give them pills, send them back out. It, just, it makes me think of it because it's like, I, we all want to be safe. Nobody wants to be pushed in front of the subway. What do you do with that guy?
1: Yeah, actually, that story was sent to me by a friend who's a writer, uh, and he just wrote under it dirty work. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I, I read this story myself, and very much fits into the prism of the first part of my book because I write about a prison in Florida that... Um, becomes uh, the site of of terrible abuse in the mental health ward, um, and I tell that story through the mental health aides who work there, and they're not quite mechanics, but they are. Um, they're paid twelve dollars an hour. Um, they're not actually state employees in this prison because the mental health services, like all the health services in Florida's massive prison system have been privatized. They've been contracted out. So they they work for this private company, actually two private companies at the time, Corizon and and, and later Wexford. Um, And they are told to follow medical ethics in an environment, prison, where you really can't um, I mean, just think of the fact that, you know, there's supposed to be confidentiality in between um, someone who's having mental health issues and their therapist. In jails and prisons, confidentiality is n- n- virtually non-existent. Um, and, and these, you know, so, so that's just, but that's just a small example. Um, another example might be, you know, the the security personnel in the prison Decides they're going to throw a guy in solitary um, for disciplinary reasons. You're the mental health aide. You don't. You you think this would be a terrible thing for this person? Are you going to stand in the way of, of the security guards um, when, in fact, you are beholden to those very guards to for your own protection and security as you do your work every day? Um, so these kinds of ethical conflicts. Um, exist and happen every day in America's jails and prisons, precisely because, as that story you were referencing shows, um, for a large portion of our society there really aren't beds in hospitals or mental health community centers. And what ends up happening is jails and prisons warehouse the mentally ill, particularly those who are poor. And that's a form of dirty work I look look into and, and, and show puts, it dehumanizes both the incarcerated people who are in these mental health institutions and the people who work in these institutions.
0: Well, I was going to say, to be fair, you also uh, tell it from the perspective of one of the guards.
1: I do. I do. There's a guard. The first chapter of the book is told from the perspective of the mental health aid. And as I said, she I'm not gonna go into all the details, but she witnesses these terrible abuses. Mm. And I think a reader who reads this chapter is going to assume that the prison guards are the villains of my book. But the second chapter of the book, as as you just mentioned, is told from the perspective of a prison guard in Florida. And this is a very interesting guy who ends up sharing his diary with me and um, tells me sort of all kinds of things. And he doesn't deny that there's a lot of brutality in, that's meted out by his fellow officers. In fact, he comes to refer to them in his, in his own diary as serial bullies. He calls them serial bullies. Mm. Um, and he says that the cruelty he witnessed some of these guys meet out was as bad as anything he's ever seen. But he then goes on to say, you know, I'm not going to blame them because the people of Florida get what they pay for. And what he went on to explain is, you know, Florida has the third largest um, prison system in the United States. And it spends the second least amount of money on mental health services in the country. Mm. And so what you end up having is these prisons that are flooded with people that the guards are not trained to deal with. People in the throes of mental health crises. People who would be better off getting treatment from professionals and instead, they're crowded into these facilities, and lo and behold, there's a lot of brutality, a lot of violence, and a lot of abuse. Um, and to some extent, this guard, Bill Curtis is his name, you know, was, was pointing the finger back at society, saying, you know, you, you like to blame the guards. Well, what do you really expect? And and maybe what do you really want from the guards? Um, so so it's that ambiguity, I think, that I'm trying to explore.
0: Yeah, I mean, on one hand, we don't want people like, I can't remember his name, but the the guy who pushed the woman in front of the subway, who's clearly mentally ill. I mean, it, you know, he needed help. We don't want that. But then we would also say, well, no, you shouldn't abuse this guy or, you know, treat him badly. And, but <laughs> when, when you're dealing with someone who's violent for whatever reason, uh, you know, it's th- that I've never been in that situation. It's hard to judge, but people do judge it. Yeah, and I think that, um, you know, my idea of
1: dirty work is, I didn't originate it. And it comes, comes from a, an essay that I dug up, uh, written by a sociologist named Everett Hughes. And the, the essay was called Good People and Dirty Work. And it was based on a really extreme example, um, the example of Nazi Germany. But Hughes was an American sociologist and he spent uh, 1948, uh, in post-war Germany in Frankfurt, and he was teaching there. And he started asking the Germans that he met um, about the Nazi era. And the people he was asking were not committed Nazis. They were what he called the good people. They were educated, they were cosmopolitan. They tended to um, want to distance themselves from, from what had happened. And so they would tell him, you know, we were ashamed of, of what the Nazis did. But then as as he probed a little further, they would say, you know, but the Jews, they really were a problem. Mm -hmm. Um, And something had had to be done about this problem. I'm not saying what the Nazis did was right, but but this was a problem. And out of this sort of on the one hand, on the other hand, Hughes formulates this essay called Good People and Dirty Work. And what he says there is, you know, the people in Nazi Germany who were taking care of this problem, um, who were rounding up the Jews, um, they were not rogue actors. They were agents of a society that had come to see Jews as outsiders, as an, as an other. Um, and what to me is most fascinating about this essay is that Hughes, who is an American, makes it very clear after he writes it that he's writing it for an American audience. He, he sees this dynamic As a universal one, that in all societies, even though the Nazi example is very extreme, there are forms of dirty work that society kind of tacitly allows to happen, doesn't ask too much about, because it's convenient. And he raises these very pointed questions: you know, who does this work? Uh, What kind of mandate does it have from society? Might the good people in society give it an unconscious mandate? that that maybe would never be explicitly recognized, but that that is sort of implicit. And I revisit all those questions in this book, but through the lens of contemporary America.
0: Yeah, that really struck me that opening about <laughs> him saying, look, I'm not, you know, pointing the finger at people in Germany during the Nazi era. I'm pointing the finger at, you know, places like America where, you know, liberal democracy, however you want to put it, and I mean, there were Nazi rallies in Madison Square Garden. So, I mean, I thought it was an interesting, again, the extreme, but you see it. I guess his point was you see facets of this in all societies.
1: Yeah, he says that explicitly, that there are these in groups and out groups in all society. And in fact, one of the things he points out is he he, he talks about, you know, convicts, about about people who are convicted of crimes. And he says, you know, this is a hazy category. In society. It's kind of an outgroup. And it's one of these, well, you know, I certainly don't, I'm not for, you know, mistreating and abusing people, but they're not quite part, they're a problem that needs to be taken care of. And I would say that um, that's true of the mentally ill in America, that, that there's this sort of just like in that case with with the man in the subway system and that that tragic and awful story, it's not all that surprising because there are not enough services, and so if you live in a in a city like Chicago or New York or um, you know Miami or where, wherever it is, you see that a lot of mentally ill people are wandering the streets, um, and some of them, most of them, are not violent, um, but some of them can be and and that is on society as as a social problem but we don't we don't deal with it and then and then we have these tragic stories
0: right and we say somebody better deal with this but however the sausage gets made we don't but it's not going to be me yeah it's not going to be me And, and i guess if you ask most people like you know what should you do with mentally ill people well they should be treated and everything but you know until something terrible happens then the the refrain comes a lot different um yeah you mentioned uh you know you use the term shadow people in your book you to kind of take another slant on it I many I think it was 1997 I lived in Breckenridge Colorado for a year drove a bus yeah it's a ski resort town and it struck me how that town ran like nobody really saw these sort of underbelly like housing was very expensive I lived in a house with seven other people and but, you know, I had a college education. I was going back, you know, to to New York and do whatever I was going to do. But there were many people there who were kind of nomadic. Like, they kind of went from job to job. They lived in company housing or they lived in motels and, and things like that. And it, when you use that term shadow people, so I was wondering if you could expound on that. That's what it reminded me of. I was struck by this whole kind of society of people who we're doing this work in the the ski resorts and the motels and things like that, that you never laid eyes on.
1: Yeah, well, I think that um, that's true of so much of not just the dirty work, but really the work that goes on in America, the lower wage, low status work is done in the shadows. Um, And we have come to accept such a profound level of inequality in our society that we expect it that there's a class of people who stay in hotels and you know um, travel around and 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 you know have frequent flyer miles and there's a class of people who clean the hotel rooms um, there's a class of people who you know pick up their garbage and and so forth and and you know plenty of other writers have kind of explored that divide um, people like Barbara Ehrenreich and and you know. Her great book, Nickel and Dime,d mm-hmm. um, but what's a little different in my book is that I'm suggesting that this divide and this invisible, these invisible shadow people don't just do a lot of the low wage drudgery um, that you know is is featured in Nickel and Dime,d they also do a lot of the sort of most dirtying, morally dirtying things in our society. Um, and that, so that the class divide, the the divide in income, mirrors another form of inequality, which is which is a moral divide, a form of moral inequality, where where some people can, you know, not feel in any way that they're connected to these morally dubious activities, and other people are are immersed in them and doing them, and that's that's really. I think, a form of inequality we don't talk about enough.
0: So not only, like, do you make less money than me, you're not as good a person as I am morally.
1: Absolutely. I mean, and and just think of, uh, you know, prison guards, I, I don't mean to uh, exonerate or absolve um, guards who mistreat incarcerated people, uh, you, you know, of responsibility for what what they're doing. And and no one who reads my book, I think, will will get that impression. But um, I think that there's also a way in which the same society that um, for years was voting in politicians who said, lock them up and throw away the key, that same society can turn around. And when a story of um, an abusive guard, you know, feature appears in the in the paper, they can look down on that person and say, "Ah, oh, you know what a brute! Um, what what you know what what a callous turnkey! What a you know what, what kind of person would do that?" Um, and you know, to borrow again from Everett Hughes, that sociologist, he 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 indeed does this in his essay. He says, "You know, well, let's look at it from the perspective of that guard. You know, society has kind of sent that guard a, a message. You know, be, be a little bit brutal." Um, you know, we're, we're going to fill these prisoners to capacity. Uh, we're not going to fund them very much. Uh, we're not going to, you know, rehabilitation Nah, that's for soft people. Mm. Um, and so, you know, do what you have to do. And, and I think that that's the kind of double standard that, that reflects this moral inequality I'm talking about.
0: Like do what you have to do, but we don't want to hear about it. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Um, and, I, and I would apply that to people who work in slaughterhouses. <laughs> do, do what you have to do. The people doing it mainly being, you know, immigrants, often undocumented people, refugees. Um, do what you have to do. I don't want to hear about it. I just want my, you know, supply of fast food and meat and and, and so forth uh, not to be interrupted. Um And then we can also apply it to to something like, you know, the drone wars, where I think that we've had these kind of unending wars um, since 2001, since September 11th, but they've kind of faded into the background. Uh, We don't, you know, with the exception of the recent withdrawal from Afghanistan, it's just kind of become a feature of what the U.S. does. You know, we send these unmanned aerial aerial vehicles around the globe and they they you know, fire off these missiles, but someone's doing that. Uh, it's not, it's not actually unmanned. Um, there are people who are, you know, looking at the screens and, and carrying out those strikes. So in all of these ways, you know, I think it, 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 it's worth investigating and illuminating.
0: You know, it kind of puts me in mind of, you know, people who, um, I don't know, if you want to go all the way back to Vietnam, I mean, people were drafted, to go fight, you know, at the average age of 19. People whose parents could pay for them to go to college got an exemption. And then when those soldiers came back, they were reviled, they were spit on by the very same people who were able to buy their way. I mean, I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush here, but who were able to buy their way out of performing military service. I mean, talk about dirty work, you know, uh, and even today, it you know, for people who are of the lower class, often military service is seen as a way to like get out of that, get a job and whatnot. But you also might be called upon to do very morally questionable things. And I it, it that conundrum just sort of came up as you were talking about that.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely what I what I explore in um in the section of the book on uh folks who who work as you know, who work in the kill chain, what's called the kill chain um, in the drone program. And um, I think that the just to bring it back to Everett Hughes and solving a problem, you know, after 9-11, George W. Bush, Dick Cheney, and, and others, um, you know, there was this, there was Guantanamo, there were the black site prisons. There were all these places where detainees were being taken and roughed up and that was a euphemism, you know, the, the enhanced interrogation techniques
0: for torture.
1: Um, and, and I think a lot of Americans were deeply disturbed, especially once the, the, the pictures from Abu Ghraib came out and, you know, showing kind of these abuses, there was, there was a reaction against that. And, and a lot of, uh, I think a lot of, you know, a lot of Americans I think did feel dirtied by that, so what happened afterwards? That's the interesting part. And that's where I pick up the story in the book. Well, Obama gets elected and he says right away, you know, he's going to end torture. He's going to change these policies and clo- shut down these black site prisons. Um, but at the same time, he significantly expands the use of armed drones to carry out lethal strikes. In fact, they they increase um i think it's it's more than tenfold uh from from what they were under bush and um and that I think solved a problem for society because on the one hand it enabled America to continue fighting you know the war on terror that was not a phrase Obama liked, but he indeed pr- prolonged it, and the global war on terror um but without the disturbing pictures, without the kind of Abu Ghraib scandals. And, and one of the notable things about drones is the footage is classified, right? So we don't see it on the nightly news. Um, when we read about it, it's very, on very rare occasions that journalists happen to, you know, investigate a particular strike. They find out, oh, this claim was wrong. This, it turns out this person was hit, not that person. But a lot of it just passes unquestioned and unnoticed, and to me, that's that's a really vivid example of dirty work.
0: On our end, it's very antiseptic.
1: Yes, it's antiseptic, uh, and 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 I played with that a little bit in the book. This kind of notion of, you know, drone warfare being viewed as um, immaculate, mm. you know, just this kind of uh, these precision strikes and and the language. That suggests something surgical, mm. um, but you know, I would ask any American um, how we would feel if there were unarmed but remotely piloted and lethal aerial vehicles hovering over our cities, yeah. that occasionally fired missiles right. <laughs> um, I don't think we'd be talking about them as, you know, antiseptic and and precise. I think we'd be up in arms.
0: Um, well, I was going to say, from the people on the ground in Afghanistan, Pakistan, how how surgical and precise is it? You know. Yeah,
1: I, th- I think that um, I think they would contest that. Um, yeah. Number one, but I think that the other piece of it is that even for folks who never, you know, are never targeted. You live with the fear. Mm -hmm. Um, You live with the sense that at any moment, something can happen. Yeah, And that, of course, is what terrorism is. Um, Mm -hmm. It's this sense that, oh, I could be at a cafe and a bomb could go off. And it's very frightening.
0: Yeah. I had um, Philip Mudd on the podcast a while ago. He was the the CIA's deputy chief of the counterterrorism unit. And he, he wrote a book called I can't remember the name of his but It was about the dark sites. And he said they they knew that at some point, this is, you know, he was in there right after 9-11. He knew that Congress at some point and the public was going to turn on them.
1: Yeah.
0: we talked about getting paper. They wanted everything on any orders because detainees did die in those prisons. And he, he said because they didn't know how to run prisons. That was never the CIA's mandate. Never. Yeah. Not to defend it, or whatever, but he was very candid about that, and he said um and they did they 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 wanted the CIA to stop these terrorist attacks, get the prisons up, the black sites, and so forth, and then when it went sour, they turned on him, so that yeah. seemed like the ultimate dirty work, like take care of this, but don't do it in a way that's going to come back on us, which is nearly impossible to do absolutely, yeah. Yep. So just to kind of uh, go to another issue, you um, you talk about the pandemic, and that you brought up this term essential workers, which I'm sure everybody who's listening to this podcast knows this term, but then you uh, gave this interesting spin on it as being a new label kind of for low wage workers, and you know what the pandemic really revealed. I'm kind of combining two questions here what the pandemic revealed about people who do the dirty work in America. So can you talk about that label and the, and the purpose or repurposing of that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that um, the pandemic has really opened a lot of people's eyes um, about what was always there, but never talked about, which was the fact that um, society is kept running, by some workers who are, you know, if they disappeared, the groceries would stop showing up, um, the, the buses would stop running, the trains would stop running, the, the, you know, hospital emergency rooms would no longer be staffed. And so it, it was in a really eye-opening, um, you know, lesson, I think, for, for the entire country about the division of labor. Um, and what was notable about so many of those so-called essential workers who were doing these jobs that, you know, were deemed necessary and people had to keep doing them even as the, the virus was spreading, um, is how shabbily the people who do so many of these jobs are treated. Um, they're underpaid, they're exploited, they often don't have benefits, um, you know, Let's not forget that that um, you know one of the major uh, issues in 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 the sort of first packet of you know government assistance during the pandemic was whether you know was to make these many of these essential workers eligible for benefits um, because a lot of them don't have benefits and so i I think that um, the term, while often used disingenuously by politicians, uh, you know, you say essential workers as though you care about them. Um, but I think at this point, many Americans understand full well that the people who are labeled with, with this term are often treated as expendable, even as they, they really are essential.
0: Well, and you know, you know, I'm a teacher, like. I stayed home for a good piece of this and worked remotely Zoom classes. I mean, I like it, but, you know, a lot of people, uh, well, I shouldn't say a lot of people, uh, upper class people, the elites, you would say, people in better, much better paid jobs, exponentially better paid, they got to stay home. Absolutely. And, And the essential workers did not, like the grocery store workers and nurses and so forth did not.
1: Yeah, there was a class of workers who had the groceries delivered to their door and were able to sit, sit at their computers and, you know, remain safe with a class of workers who were putting their lives on the line. Um, and, you know, I think that to bring it back to my book, um, I, I sort of raised the question of whether the people who do society's dirty work are also essential workers. And I think that they are essential to the existing social order. Um, Of course, that social order can change, it can be questioned, it's open to, you know, alteration, but, um, you know, they do prop up the society we have. Mm
0: -hmm. For, For the benefit of the people or the elites? Yes, for the most part. Indeed, not for their own benefit. <laughs> right. Well, is I mean, is there any shift here? Like you know, pe- like McDonald's is offering sixteen dollars an hour, and uh, you know, places have been uh, you know, it's been a real struggle for them to get workers and things like that. I mean, is this something you see as? Uh, Like is the market kind of sorting things out for higher wages and benefits or is there a a political move that should be made here? Is this a time for that or how do you see that?
1: Yeah, I think it's a time will tell. um, Because I think a lot of what we assume will be questionable as conditions change, you know, a year ago. Inflation was not high on the list of ex- expected worries of of most Americans, <laughs> and now it is. Um, the, there has been a very striking, uh, you know, reluctance of many people to go back to jobs that they found they didn't actually like, and the pandemic opened up this, you know, period where people could ask themselves. Do I really want to continue doing that for the for the next twenty years? Um, and I think a lot of people are pausing and hesitating, and you know, employers are in, in, in many places wondering, you know, how long is this going to last, and, and what will the consequences be? That said, um, I think that it comes down to power. That 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 is that that the relationship between employees and employers nothing about the pandemic is going to shift the fact that if you don't have unions, if you don't have some sort of collective voice for the workers, they're going to wind up exploited and mistreated. Um, And that age old battle that has played out for hundreds of years, I think will continue to play out. I do think that um, There have been really striking shifts in, particularly how younger Americans um, see these issues. There's quite striking support for unionization efforts. And, you know, I find it very striking that in my hometown of Buffalo, um, there was this effort to unionize some Starbucks, uh, uh, you know, cafes, Mm. And everybody thought that's crazy. That won't happen, and it did happen. Mm. And now it's caught on. And, and in last time I read, six, six or seven states uh, there are similar drives uh, going on. That's quite interesting. And one of the really interesting things is that you know Starbucks, I'm sure, has the resources to crush uh, efforts within its um, stores. You know, for baristas to to unionize but there's a problem do they want the public relations hit you know with with people in their 20s who start you know going on social media saying check it out you know Starbucks firing the baristas in you know North Carolina because they dared to form a union don't buy your coffee there mm. do that you know that that's that's a problem for them in in, in a time when I think public sentiment is that, you know, workers deserve more. They deserve more than $8 an hour. They deserve to be, if they're performing essential functions, um, they deserve benefits and they deserve to to go to a safe workplace. So I think in all those ways, it's a really interesting time for these issues.
0: Well, it's amazing how, uh, to me anyway, this, you know, I would say politicians or those of the elite would be very indignant or have sounded very indignant saying, well, you know, nobody wants to go back and work anymore. It's like, well, why would, in a lot of these jobs, why would anyone want to do it? They have to do it to survive. They run.
1: And, that, and that's a big part. That's a big premise of my book that the dirty work in America, you know, you can think about it as, oh, well, these people chose to be prison guards. These people chose to be mental health aides in a jail. These people chose to go into the drone program. These people chose to work in a slaughterhouse, but who, who makes those choices? You know, it's not people with, um, you know, advanced degrees and, you know, trust funds and all the rest. It's by and large people with, with, with worse choices and fewer opportunities.
0: Hmm. Uh, you know, it's I was just remembering this, uh, a, a woman wrote, she'd worked at Facebook, you know, she made like $160,000 a year and so forth. And, she was complaining that Facebook was not fulfilling her with a sense of purpose. And I thought only somebody with a college education making $160,000 a year talks like that. Like I, I worked at Coca-Cola for two summers, you know, in the warehouse. Nobody ever mentioned anything like that. You just did your job and you got your paycheck and you went home. So I, it just strikes me that attitude, I mean, this we could do a whole other podcast on it, but that very strange attitude of like, that again, could only come from somebody of the upper classes.
1: It's a sad fact in our society that doing something you love and enjoy is a privilege. Um, and it's, it's really too bad. Um, but I do think that, that you know, the, the labor shortage is reflecting the fact that a lot of people with shitty jobs don't want those jobs back. Um, right. Of course necessity will hit at some point but yeah let's we'll see how it plays out
0: yeah all right well uh a all press thank you so much for doing this this is a, a really enlightening conversation our listening audience the book is dirty work please read it it's it's uh it's a great story along with a great message and that's that's not easy to do actually you know write engaging stories, and, and then actually have the, the message in there too. So thanks very much for writing that book and for being on the podcast.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, take care. All
0: right. You too. All right. Well, thanks very much.
1: Thanks, Matthew. Have a All good right.
0: One. All right. Take care. You too. I need a link. Okay. I will. Bye-bye.